You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. When we discuss migratory birds on this podcast, most times those discussions are going to focus on waterfowl, ducks, geese, or swans. But occasionally, we're going to have an opportunity to broaden those discussions to include species beyond waterfowl. And this is one of those occasions because today we're going to be sharing information on sandhill cranes with a particular emphasis on the eastern population of sandhill cranes. Sandhill cranes are a logical extension of some of our earlier conversations because these birds use many of the same habitats as do waterfowl. They are the beneficiaries of much of the conservation work that we do for waterfowl. And waterfowl hunters and bird watchers often intersect with these birds while out pursuing waterfowl in some form or fashion. Also, I can attest from personal experience that sandhill cranes are excellent table fare, just like many of our waterfowl species. So I'm pretty excited about this episode, and I, and I hope you are as well. Joining me to discuss this, this exciting group of birds is someone who knows a great deal about sandhill cranes in eastern North America, and that is Dr. John Brunges, Migratory Bird Program Coordinator for Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. John, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great, uh, great first experience to be here with you. John, we want to start out giving you the same opportunity we do all of our guests, and that is to provide our listeners with a brief background of your, uh, a brief description of your personal and professional background and where it is you are right now and what you do for the department. Sounds great. Uh, I am um, one of those kids that grew up with fascinated with outdoors and wildlife. And, and I've told many folks that I am probably the result of a Ducks Unlimited Green Wing event. Somewhere way back in the 1970s, as a little kid, I went to a DU Green Wing event and became obsessed with ducks and went through my life kind of as a series of ch adventures chasing ducks and couldn't give it up and went to school, graduate school and, and uh, can continue to pursue wildlife and wildlife conservation and ended up eventually here in Kentucky, but I uh, went uh, to my undergraduate in North Carolina at a small school called the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where I was basically a marine biology and biology major, studied uh, seabirds while I was there, then moved on to the University of Georgia for my master's, and then finally Texas Tech for my PhD. And then through that route, I've worked in a number of different places, but uh, eventually ended up here as the Migratory Bird Program Coordinator in Kentucky, which means I kind of oversee uh, our migratory game bird programs, uh, ducks, geese, uh, sandhill cranes, and and uh, morning doves and other things that people like to hunt, as well as some of the non-game species that are tied to wetlands uh, here in Kentucky. So I love it. It's been a lifelong passion and 
uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to keep doing it. How long have you been there with Kentucky Department of Wildlife? Uh, what is it? I'm going to have to get this right here because they're all different. The Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. Uh, I, uh, we're right about 15 years that I've been here in Kentucky. I came here from, from Texas and uh, I had the opportunity to start out working actually a little while on non-game birds here in Kentucky and then switched and uh, worked for Rocky Pritchard, who was our previous coordinator and uh, worked mostly with webless species, including cranes, doves, and now I kind of oversee all the, all the program. Well, it's a, it's a de- delight to have you on. You and I have known one another for a number of years. And whenever I learned that you were actively involved in working on the Mississippi Flyways uh, Sandhill Crane plan of some sort. You can tell me more about that here in a minute in terms of exactly what you're doing. But basically, I learned that you were neck deep in in researching what's going on with Sandhill Cranes in the eastern U.S. And I said, that's a great topic. That's somebody that I need to get on to discuss that because Sandhill Cranes are incredibly fascinating. I mean, they're, they're gaining greater appreciation by a a host of, of people that certainly the, the hunting community is seeing what's happening with, with this bird, the growth of their populations. They are a wonderful resource. They are outstanding table fare. Uh, and so this is, again, I'm really excited about this. I think cranes are a, are a, a tremendous success story, certainly in the Eastern U S and we're excited to bring this, this story to our listeners and excited to have you be part of it. So let's, let's kind of jump in here, John, um, Fill me in on exactly what it is you're working on. We're going to get into a lot of the details on Sandhill Cranes later on, but just sort of at a very high level, what is it? What what have you been working on with regard to Sandhill Cranes here for the Mississippi Flyway? Is it like a management plan of some sorts? It, it is a management plan, and and you know, for any species that we have hunting seasons for, it's very important to monitor those populations carefully and make sure that. That, you know, hunting is not having detrimental uh, effects. And so uh, in in the U.S., there are a number of different populations of migratory sandhill cranes. And in Kentucky, the population that comes through Kentucky is called the eastern population of sandhill cranes. And they basically nest around the Great Lakes region uh, of North America and then winter somewhere between Indiana and Florida. And so that they make that migration every year. And so that population uh, was really, really impacted by uh, prior to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, by lack of hunting regulations and things. And there were basically almost no birds left in this population. And with the, with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, in 1918, we have seen a population that is slowly but steadily recovered to the point in 2010 where the Mississippi Flyway and the Atlantic Flyway got together and wrote a management plan that would allow for a for a small regulated hunting season on sandhill cranes. And so that, unfortunately, 2010 seemed like yesterday, but it's 10 years old now. And we've learned a lot of things in those 10 years. And so it's time to revise the plan. It was probably time a couple of years ago. And Things get busy and it hasn't gotten done, but it's uh, it's on the front uh, front burner now and it's got to get done. Well, and that means that that you've been uh, a lot of your time here recently has been focused on this particular species. And so I wanted to have you on to discuss it. So let's back up and and talk pretty basic stuff about sandhill cranes as a species uh, in the eastern U.S., as you kind of described, there's still fairly restricted distribution. You get into the central flyway 
And certainly if you've made any trips to Saskatchewan or Manitoba during certain times of the year, you're likely to have encountered these birds. But in the eastern U.S., there there's still some fairly restricted distributions. So there may be some listeners that you know, aren't too familiar with, with what these things are. So at, <clears throat> tell us, uh, I always find this fascinating, John, that the taxonomy of this species, they look an awful lot like uh, like herons, you know, the great blue heron, the great egret, uh, those kind of long leg wading birds. They look real similar to uh, to cranes, uh, sandhill cranes and whooping cranes are the two cranes that we have in North America. But those birds, cranes and, and herons, are not even in the same taxonomic order. So, for for those that might be you know taxonomy buffs in the, in the crowd, tell our folks about about cranes uh, and how they kind of fall out in that taxonomic classification. They really are very very different birds. They're they're uh, you know probably much more uh, closely related to rails uh, than they would be to other wading birds. I, I can tell you a call I get all the time is I got a crane in my pond. It's standing on the side of the <laughs> pond. Well, it's not going to be a crane likely it's going to be a great blue heron uh and and they're you know they're a uh the sand hills are the most probably the most abundant crane species in the world here uh so they are they are but, but they are commonly confused with with our with our wading birds such as uh great blue herons or other you know other herons but you watch them you, you can tell really quickly uh the the cranes fly with their neck extended uh, herons also fly, you know, fly with their neck kind of an S-shaped fashion and how they behave. And, you know, herons are mostly f- fish eaters and they're fishing and catching things like that, where cranes are more of a grain feeder or things like that in uplands. If you see a bird out in the middle of a field, it's going to be a crane, not a heron. So some of those are the differences uh, and how they, you know, some of their strategies and how they nest. Cranes are solitary nesters versus uh most of your wading birds are colonial nesters and they nest in big groups and you know cranes nest on the ground or on the humps out in the marsh where 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 herons and egrets are often up in the top of a tree somewhere so they're they're they look similar but they're definitely different different critters cranes are actually more closely related to coots than they are the herons and the egrets and and that for people that are familiar with waterfowl, uh, you've, you've you've seen coots. You've probably seen a few rails as well. Coots are in the rail family, uh, but yeah, it's pretty striking to tell someone that that sandhill crane is more closely related to the coot than it is to the great blue heron. But a little bit of trivia there for you. They're they're neat birds. So John, let's back up here and then talk about distribution a bit of, of sandhill cranes in North America. You've referenced already that there are different populations of sandhill cranes. So Tell our listeners about those. How many are they? Are there, and, and where are they found? In the U.S., we kind of in North America, I should say, we recognize six migratory populations of of uh, sandhill cranes, and so those six would include the eastern population that I kind of previously mentioned, uh, the Central Valley population jumping west, the Central Valley population, which would be Kerr in California, uh, Washington, Oregon. Uh, you have a lower Colorado River Valley population, which is uh, mostly uh, Arizona and uh, uh, California, and then mid-continent, I mean, Rocky Mountain population, which is up in the fall of the Rocky Mountains and the winter down in New Mexico, into Mexico. 
And then the real biggie is the mid-continent population, which is uh, over last year's survey was over a million birds in that population. And it, and they nest across uh, Canada and Alaska and with a sizable group coming from Siberia. And they will come down and winter in Central Flyway, kind of uh, down to, mostly in Texas, but uh, Oklahoma and then into Mexico as well. So they are the mid-continent birds are, they basically stretch across the, across the northern parts of Canada and then end up and into Alaska and then Siberia and then come down south from there. So it's, uh, it's interesting when we were in Texas, uh, there was a researcher from a student from Japan that put a satellite transmitter on a crane in Siberia and he was there following it around the Texas panhandle. So pretty cool to think those birds actually migrate across the Bering Sea there and then come down in, into North America. Yeah, with all this new technology, we're getting more and more of those stories of these fascinating feats that that my, migratory birds are able to uh, are able to accomplish. It's just just amazing, and it, it's what makes them real special to to study and and to help conserve habitat on on their on their behalf for sure. Uh, so, John, I grew up in Mississippi, and I I know there is a population of sandhill cranes in South Mississippi, but that's not one that you mentioned. I also know there's a resident flock in Florida. So, talk about those two as well. The resident populations in Florida and Mississippi. There are there are three actually three non migratory populations of of sandhills, and again the the Mississippi population, which is is a tiny population. The last number that I could dig up is uh, somewhere around 100 birds in that population. Very, very few left. And then a slightly bigger population is found in Florida and, and into South Georgia called the Florida population. If you've ever been to, to uh, Disney World and or that part of the world and seen sandhill cranes walking down the side of the road, uh, that is mm-hmm. that Florida population bird. And then lastly, and there's somewhere around four or 5,000 in that population. And then lastly, there's a Cuban population, which has about 600 sandhill cranes and in, in that that, are, that occur across parts of Cuba. So we have three, three, three non-migratory groups as well as the migratory. And as you said, the Mississippi population is, is extremely endangered and really only occurs on that one Mississippi sandhill crane national wildlife refuge. So they are one that we keep very, very careful to watch on. There's a number of things that we could discuss with respect to each of these populations. Certainly the, uh, the populations out in the western U.S., the mid-continent, as you mentioned, is the largest. And there are a host of studies that have been conducted over the years as a host of data with respect to harvest and, and all sorts of things related to those. That's not going to be the focus of, of our eventual conversation here. We'd probably get somebody like Dr. Jim Dubofsky on the podcast if we wanted to discuss some of those uh, some of those populations or Dr. Dan Collins. I know he's been involved in some of those in the southwestern U.S. So there's a lot of study going on out there as well. But but the eastern population is pretty interesting in itself. And we're going to eventually get to that discussion, what's happened with it. Uh, but uh, let's continue on with our discussion about sort of basic life history of, of uh, of cranes, sandhill cranes. We've talked about the historical distribution, these different populations. Uh, now, preferred habitats. You referenced this already, John, but just again, what are we talking about? Where are people most likely to find sandhill cranes? It, it depends on what time of year you're talking about. But if you're talking about in the breeding distribution, they nest in wetlands. They nest generally in areas, wetland marsh type areas where they can find a hump out in the marsh and build up a hump. 
that gets them up above the water surface level, but uh, provides protection from from predators. Uh, and so those those spots are where, where they nest and then they'll come out of those areas. They'll feed around in the wetlands, but then they also come out and feed in agricultural fields. But as the winter goes, you know, as, as the fall goes on and they leave their nesting sites and they switch to more and more use of agricultural type uh, fields, uh, harvested agricultural fields, and 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 will use uh, basically wetland areas for their roosting spots at night. One of the challenges for us in Kentucky is, you know, places where cranes can roost at night safely. They've got to have somewhere where they the water's shallow enough that they can stand and see what's going on, so that you know predators can't get them. They don't roost in trees like so many other birds, so they have to have shallow water areas where they can see what's going on around them. Hmm. That, that brings back memories of some of the roost ponds that I've that I've seen in Saskatchewan. They're just these vast, expansive, very shallow wetlands that have some the sparse emergent vegetation in them, exactly as you as you described there. And so, uh, it's a pretty neat little situation. That's also one of the reasons why those sandhill cranes are some of the uh, some of the early migrants out of. Uh, out of those staging areas in southern Saskatchewan, you know, they uh, once you start to get some of those freezing temperatures, those shallow roost ponds, roost wetlands begin to freeze up. They're gone. So um, that's also just a little, uh, another little interesting fact of how their habitat associations kind of affect some of the, the timing of their migration. So their sandhill cranes are also, at least in some in some cases, they can be problematic with regard to crop depredation. Do I have that right, John? You do. And there are in areas like Wisconsin and Michigan and um, maybe Minnesota, other some of the in our Great Lakes states and certainly in the Ontario as well. There are cases where the young corn, when it's planted, uh, sandhill cranes will go in and pull it up you know, just as it's emerging and, and eat it will actually do pretty substantial damage to crop fields. Uh, there's been some research done in, in recent years with some taste aversion stuff that you can put on corn so that base that the cranes will when they start to go pull it up, the t- it tastes bad. And they've had real success with keeping crane predation down on cornfields down by putting this uh, this taste aversion thing on. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. They're on the seeds. So let's move on now to a bit more of their ecology. The sandhill cranes are a large bird. Generally speaking, larger birds, larger animals have a longer lifespan. What do we know about the age at first breeding? What do we know about their breeding system? And what do we know about kind of longevity of sandhill cranes? Well, they they are they are as you said long lived, and and most of their breeding strategy revolves around that. But in general, it's, you know, it's wildlife and anything can happen. But in general, we're talking that a four or five year old is the first time that they actually breed. Uh, and they, they are, people say that they mate for life, that they basically form pair bonds that last over, over a long time. And, and that is the case. Although, uh, I heard one biologist describe them as they're conveniently monogamous. 
basically <laughs> as long as they like the other member it works out but uh if it doesn't then they can uh, replace that mate and find them another one so they're kind of like people i guess in that case that i guess we're conveniently monogamous when when we want to be so uh they are they but in theory they they mate mate for life uh if one member of the pair is lost they will replace that member so it's not like they stop breeding forever after that and so uh, but they, you know, the number, the longevity, still a little bit unknown. But I'll tell you a story. A lady called me here uh, about a year ago, and she had shot a banded sandhill crane in, during our hunting season. And uh, she, which made me nervous because there's so few banded cranes out there, and there are a whole lot of banded whooping cranes. But it was a sandhill. And it was, it was the, basically in January of 2018. And it was banded as an adult in 1983 in the UP of Michigan. Oh my goodness. Was that 35 years? Yes. So, you know, that wow. was a, and she's, I was like, how was it eating? She's like the best, best thing I ever had. So she, you know, 35 <laughs> year old bird was still tasty. So, wow. uh, but uh, I, I'd say 20 plus years is probably a realistic expectation with these birds. And, and at least in this one case, we had one that we knew was over 35 years old. Yeah, and that's pretty remarkable. And there's an intersection there between its life history and kind of harvest management. But these birds that that don't reach sexual maturity, don't breed until four to five years of age, you kind of have to be a bit more cautious in some respects with with harvest strategies because uh, you don't want to shoot all these birds before they have an opportunity to get to breeding. You're you're obviously way more knowledgeable of all this than I am. We'll get to that a bit later on, but just kind of plant that seed for people to be thinking about how the, the age at first breeding is really important in terms of how we think about harvest management. They're not mallards. We don't manage them the same way for sure. That's right. That's a great point. So, John, let's let's pivot here and start talking about you know, the eastern population of sandhill cranes. As I mentioned, we could talk about what all is going on in the mid-continent and farther out west if we wanted to. But let's just try to center our, our um, discussion on what's happening in the east. That's where you've been working, what you've been studying. So that seems appropriate. And And you introduced sort of the the historical decline of the eastern population of sandhill cranes, and so let's talk a bit more about that. You know, they were they were hunted almost to extinction, but what do we know about over the about the lowest levels, population levels of sandhill cranes in the eastern U.S.? Uh, what was their historical range? Uh, let's just kind of start with those two things. Well, and unfortunately, you know like many things prior to 1900 we it's awfully hard to get a grasp on what their historical range was and and what exactly was going on but all accounts that you can find the number of eastern population sandhill cranes was there were less than 100 birds left they were just a very very small small group uh, i've heard folks say down as small as 20 but Let's just say less than 100 birds. And so with the with the protection provided by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, that population has slowly started to come back. And and as you talked about, they don't breed till they're four or five years old. In most cases, you know, they lay a couple of eggs and maybe have one successful uh, colt, which is what they would call a young crane. Uh, so they're not a fast reproducer. So over time, it's taken years and years and years for that population to grow. And so we finally started in the 70s, started seeing that, you know, an appreciable population in this group. And it slowly started to tick up since then to 2010 when we considered, okay, is this population big enough? 
And at 2010, we were talking about populations where the three-year average was 30-ish thousand uh, birds. So we do a fall count and count those birds. And so at that point, we came up with the plan and the population has continued to grow. We've gotten better at counting them. And, and nowadays, and now the, the last couple of years, the average uh, of that population is over, you know, over 80,000 birds. So we are, we're growing and, and it's continuing to do well. And I think, in fact, I think we're getting to a point where the population has grown so much. Our survey doesn't capture the population anymore that they, all the areas where we count, they filled those up and now they've spread out to other spots and we're counting the same number each year, but yet the population is continuing to grow and we're just missing a bigger and bigger part while we count them. I'm going to ask you more details about those surveys later on, but right now I want to kind of stick with the, the population distribution on this species. But it, it I, I can't let this go without just uh, acknowledging that sandhill cranes have become the latest in a in a line of conservation success stories. We can begin to put those in the same category as wood ducks and wild turkeys, oh. white-tailed deer, Canada geese. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. The more we start to understand about these species, the more the better able we are to actually implement strategies that will help these birds recover and uh, and so this again one of those remarkable success stories and it's and it really i mean again think from just a few, a few you know less than 100 birds to a more more than certainly probably more than 100,000 in the population now it's a it is a really exciting and and you know there are so many people here in Kentucky that tell me man i, I never saw a sandhill crane until 10 years ago and now we see them every year and they come through. And so it's, uh, yeah, they, they, it's around here. The migration kind of starts around the opening day of gun season. So everybody in the woods, sitting in the woods, uh, deer hunting, listens to those birds coming over and, uh, they're, they're a spectacular thing. So that's, it's a, it's a neat thing. Is there any indication, John, that this population growth is starting to level off or are we still seeing it increase at a, at a pretty good clip? We, I believe we're still seeing an increase. Uh, there has been some research done. Uh, the International Crane Foundation uh, has had a long-term study looking at, at breeding success of sandhill cranes in Wisconsin. And their, and their research has shown that in recent years, the uh, basically the reproduction of the cranes in Wisconsin has really, really dropped down to nearly zero. And, and you think about our back to population biology days when we learned about populations, they start out low, they grow, they produce a lot of young. And when they reach carrying capacity, that reproduction, reproductive effort falls way down. And so basically now the birds are, have to spend so much time defending territories and things like that, that they are not very successful. But the population doesn't need them to be successful in those areas. But if you so their reproduction in in some of those parts of Wisconsin looked really low. But if you look at uh, what we see in Kentucky and and uh, Dave Fronsack, who's a biologist with the Fish and Wildlife Service, also looked at birds in Indiana, we're still seeing 10, 11, 12 percent of the birds coming through are young birds every year. And that's the sign of a of a rapidly still rapidly growing uh, population. So we're, you know. Every year we're adding, you know, 10,000 or more birds to the population. So it, it is uh, it is still at this point, at least from looking at the young birds coming, uh, not everywhere has reached that carrying capacity. And we certainly see, 
you know, in the past 10, 15 years ago, we were talking about birds breeding in Wisconsin and Michigan and just a small area around the Great Lakes. And now they're expanding well into Ontario and Quebec and all the way over to New York and, and uh, Ohio. And, and, you know, so, so many places where they didn't used to occur, or at least haven't in recent years occurred that, that, that map, even 10 years after we did the management plan in 2010, is going to look dramatically different in 2020. Wow, it's exciting to hear about that expansion and that growth. John, you mentioned that the, during the surveys, you were able to identify young birds and adult birds. For those that may not know, how do you differentiate young birds from, from adults from a, you know, from a distance? Uh, if for, for, there's a couple ways. Number one, their voice is very distinct. You can hear, they. It's uh, I don't make sounds, so I, I apologize for <laughs> I that. But they have No, my brother is a concert violinist and conductor, and I can't blow a duck call. So, you know, I just <laughs> I try not to make any sounds. But it's uh, okay. it's they they have a distinct sound. But more than that, the the adult birds are a nice gray. They have that red cap. They have very you know. It's just the the young birds are much dirtier looking and much much less. Uh, have have the colors and nearly as nice as the adults do. So uh, they're 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 pretty distinct when you get a chance to look at them. They they're just missing some of those those real distinct colors that the adults have. You you mentioned the distribution of birds and uh, the breeding distributions. Let's talk a bit more about their breeding habitats. Uh, what type of wetlands are they going to be breeding in or nesting in? I should say, and then. What do we know about their diet during the breeding season? Freshwater marshes are your, 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 you know, the typical Great Lakes freshwater marshes, you know, emergent marshes where, again, what they need is little islands out in the marsh uh, that they can build up a hump uh, to build, you know, for them a place to get the, the eggs out of the water and, and, and be able to, uh, you know, to protect and watch their nest and, the female does most of the incubating, but the male is right there and, and involved in nest defense and things like that. But they, uh, you know, they they eat during that time period. Like most birds, they are, you know, they are, well, they are mostly a, a vegetarian. But during times of nesting, they, like many birds, pick up, uh, will switch to uh, invertebrates, uh, insects and things like that, or, or small mammals or uh, or fish or anything like that to supplement, provide extra protein and things for the, for their young as they start raising their young. So there's reports of them eating everything from small mammals to fish and that, but, you know, in general, the, you know, they would be more, more likely to be a vegetarian than, than a meat eater. Yeah, but it sounds like they're not terribly discriminatory when it comes to what they eat. Certainly in the breeding season, and then and then during the migra- during migration and winter, that's when they're uh, they're certainly not shy about taking advantage of of the grains that are on the landscape, right? Absolutely, there. The, you know, you find you know when you get here in Kentucky and other places, they they will roost on a on a lake, and then they all all morning they head out and. and Lines headed to those harvested ag fields, corn or or milo or whatever else that might be out there that they can pick up seeds in. John, from a historical conservation standpoint, we think about some of these other success stories, wood ducks. We've got the nest box that played a, a key role. We've got wild turkeys where reintroductions played a key role uh, and Canada geese as well. 
was was reintroduction or were any other kind of targeted habitat management efforts? You mentioned islands, uh, so I kind of find myself wondering if there were targeted efforts to create uh, wetlands that had a bunch of islands in them. Were there any of these, what, what kind of efforts were involved in uh, the, the conservation and growth of the eastern population? You know, it, it mostly occurred, you know, most of, I think it mostly occurred just through protection of wetlands in general. I don't, there, there are not many specific examples out there of, hey, we built, you know, with ducks, we build wetlands for ducks for this particular thing. We do this. And I think in general, just protection of wetlands that allows this, you know, I'd, I've never read a story about somebody going out and building islands for them. And, and I say, I call it an island. I mean, they, they may use vegetation to build a hump out there in the marsh. And so, uh, they, they, you know, it's, I think it, this is one of those cases is more about protection, uh, than really hardcore management that we did something mm -hmm. like trapping and stocking and things like that, that we just, left them alone enough to allow them to do their thing. And again, the protection of wetlands, you know, the, I mean, through DU and everything, how much, how many wetlands we've lost in this country and in North America in general. And, and, you know, through whatever kind of different processes that have protected wetlands over the years, uh, that has certainly resulted in, and, and helping the cranes, but it's been more about just the leaving them alone and allowing them to do their thing than, really hardcore active management, say something like the whooping crane, where we've had such a, a hands-on approach to them. That's pretty fascinating. I don't think I realized that the the strong dichotomy there between those, the, the successes between these examples, um, you know, you think trumpeter swans also is an example where we've done some reintroductions um, and certainly the hooping cranes as well. But that's pretty interesting to learn that the sandhill crane, we just, we figured out that, hey, we can't, we can't harvest these things the way we've been doing unregulated. And then we just kind of let them go and try to preserve their, uh, preserve their important wetlands. And, and they did the rest. That's pretty fascinating to learn that. In North America, we basically stopped hunting cranes from 1918 to 1960. And then after that, we, you know, 61 on, we've slowly increased hunting opportunity in the nation. But in, in this Eastern population, 2011 was the first year that they were hunted since the, almost a hundred years that they had been protected, uh, from hunting and, and things, but it's more about the, again, just allowing them to, and their, and their roost in their nesting areas to have, make sure they've got those wetlands that are there and, and just letting them do their thing. John, this is probably a, a perfect place to, to leave this episode, to bring this episode to a close because we're about to get into a discussion on hunting opportunities for uh, eastern sandhill cranes. And I have a number of questions for you in, in that regard because you don't just flip a switch and say, okay, we're going to start harvesting this bird. There's a lot of work that goes into that. You mentioned early on that our harvest is regulated. It's science-based. So there's a lot of steps that have to be taken. And I want to hear about some of those. And then we're going to talk about the harvest opportunities that are in place in the eastern U.S. So um, so with that, John, I want to thank you for joining us here on this episode, sharing some of this great information on sandhill cranes from a, a fairly basic standpoint at this, at this point. But we're going to get into uh, some more details on the harvest of these birds. So, John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. John Brungess. 
uh, Migratory Bird Program Coordinator for Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. We appreciate his insights on sandhill cranes all across North America. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, who does the editing of this show and does the publishing of this of these episodes as well. He always does a great job in everything he does. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and interest in this podcast. We thank you for supporting the podcast. And we thank you for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.